Let me invite you to take out your Bibles and turn them open to Mark chapter 1, and we'll look at that passage that was just read for us a moment ago, Mark chapter 1. Uh, we're in the middle of a, a journey that we kick-started a few weeks ago through the gospel of Mark. Uh, it's going to be a, well, we're going to pick up the pace. I know we've only covered four verses in the past two weeks combined, uh, but don't worry, we're not going to be in Mark for the next four years. We're going to, we'll start taking bigger chunks as time goes on, as the scenes get a little bigger. Uh, Mark just has a tendency of cramming a whole lot of stuff in, in very small, in a very small about a space. He's a very concise and precise kind of writer. Uh, so Mark chapter 1, we're looking into a passage dealing with Jesus and his disciples. Now those of us who follow Jesus, those of us who trust in the gospel, if you're someone who believe Jesus lived for you, that he died on the cross for you, that he rose physically and bodily from the grave to secure our life and our victory over sin, Satan, and death, if you believe in that Jesus, if that's the gospel you're trusting in, uh, you are what has come to be known as a Christian, uh, right? This is what we're called. We're, we're Christians, those of us who are believing in in Jesus, who worship God through Jesus. That is the label we own. That is the label we carry forward. And it is an appropriate label. But you may find it surprising that of all the labels in the scriptures that describe those of us who trust in the gospel, who believe in Jesus, uh, Christian is one of the least uh, apparent labels you will find present in the New Testament. In fact, the word Christian only shows up three times. And when it shows up in the New Testament, it is coming out of the mouth of those who are uh, speaking kind of mockingly about those who believe in Jesus the Christ. So they refer to them in a mocking kind of tone in the book of Acts as, as Christians, as little Christs. And they do it as a way of thinking that they're foolish for believing in a Messiah who was crucified on the cross. And so, although it was kind of came to us from that direction, uh, it, it is a very, it's a rare label you will find in Scripture. And so what you may find interesting is, although Christian, the word Christian only shows up three times, if you read through the New Testament closely, especially the Gospels, you're going to find that there's a different label, there's a different descriptor that applies to those who would trust in Jesus. And it's the word disciple. Christian shows up three times in the New Testament. The word disciple appears 269 times in the New Testament. Now, we need to be careful and we need to think about that well because we live and perhaps you've been exposed to a type of church culture that may suggest it's possible for a person to be a Christian without being a disciple. That it's possible for a person to be a Christian without progressing in what's called discipleship, spiritual growth. What does it mean to follow, grow as a follower of Jesus? And that type of scenario, that type of suggestion really betrays the primary strategy and the primary passion and the primary purpose Jesus employed all throughout his ministry, especially in the Gospel of Mark. You're going to find that Jesus, when he act, interacted with individuals, when he sought to populate the kingdom of God in the world, he did so not merely by making Christian converts. His goal wasn't simply to see people convert to Christianity. His goal in his interactions with people was to make disciples. That was his passion. That was his priority. He, he made disciples. And friends, if you and I are going to become the church God has called us to be in this city, we need men and women 
who believe in the gospel to rise up and to become the disciples Jesus has called us to be. And I'm under the conviction that 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 movement, focusing on what it means to be disciples of Jesus, I think that is one of the greatest needs in the church today, and it's one of the greatest needs in the world today. This was the observation made by a guy named Dallas Willard. You read his words during the reflection time. I will share them with you again. He said, the greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs. We live in a hurting world. And the greatest issue facing that world is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians, if they will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ. Steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of heaven into every corner of human existence. This is what we're going after as a church. We want to grow as disciples of Jesus. And we want to grow in our passion to make disciples of Jesus. And what's interesting, in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus begins to kick kind of kickstart his campaign, really puts things in gear to live the life that he lived for and to accomplish the purpose for which he was sent. He said last week in verse 15, we, when he stepped onto the, onto the scene, he began to speak and he said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. He announced the arrival of the kingdom of God, saying that God's redemptive reign has appeared in the world through the person of Jesus. But then in the very next Phrase In the very next passage, beginning of verse 16, as Jesus begins to advance that kingdom, as he begins to make much of that kingdom and establish its presence in the world, I love the fact that Jesus doesn't do it with much pretense and pomp. He's not flashy. He doesn't start a parade. He doesn't enter the world and seek to establish his kingdom ways in ways in which we see other kings and other rulers and other leaders in the world go about their business. No, instead what Jesus does is he, instead of coming with much, with much fanfare, he came to the, he took the approach where he, just a gradual gathering of a group of socially insignificant people in an unnoticed region of Galilee, and he called these people to be his disciples, saying, follow me and I'll make you become fishes of men. And when you look at what he does in this passage, you're going to see a few things I just want you to, I want to highlight for you tonight. You're going to see the pursuit of grace in Jesus' approach. You're going to see the command to be reoriented, to see your life come around this person named Jesus. And then you're going to see this privilege of participation, the kind of life that Jesus is calling his disciples into. But we'll start with the pursuit of grace right there in verse 16. It says, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee... He, referring to Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So he's passing along, he's walking along the Sea of Galilee, and he sees these two guys, Simon and Andrew. Then later we see that he sees two more, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. And what he does here is incredibly graceful in this moment. Because what Jesus does when he steps onto the scene and he sees these four fishermen is he goes after them. He pursues them. And that was a radically different approach he's taking when you compare his approach with other rabbis and other religious leaders that were present in the first century. Understand that Jesus did not invent the idea of disciple making. 
Disciple-making was not Jesus' idea. Having followers, having disciples was a common practice in the first century. But what Jesus is doing in this moment, he's radically redefining what it means to be a disciple of his. So in contrast with, say, a Jewish rabbi who wanted disciples, who wanted followers, usually what would happen is a young Jewish man would then approach a rabbi of his choosing, and he would pick that rabbi, and he would go to that rabbi, and then he would present himself to that rabbi. He would be given a qualifying exam, so to speak, to display his knowledge of the Torah or the Old Testament. He would uh, show the rabbi that he was willing to carry out external righteousness. He would be a good and moral person. That he would follow the rabbi in that sense. And what would happen is, after these young Jewish men, everyone wanted to have a rabbi. Everyone wanted to be a disciple of someone. And so they would go and they would present themselves to these leaders and to these teachers, these persons of influence. But if those persons of influence did not think they were up to snuff or that they met their standards, then they would dismiss them. They would reject them. And if a young Jewish person who was overlooked by a rabbi, who wasn't picked by anyone to be a disciple, they would then return to the trade of their family. And in many cases, they would become fishermen. They would embrace the, the trade and the business practices that their family was accustomed to. So it's interesting that these four men are fishermen. Chances are, at some point in time in their life, they were rejected. They were overlooked. They did not uh, meet the standards of some religious leader or some rabbi. And so you see the pursuit of grace in what Jesus is doing here, don't you? You see him going after his disciples. He's not sitting back waiting for his disciples to present themselves to him and hoping that he picks them. Instead, Jesus is is pursuing them. He's going after them. He's pursuing his disciples. And he did not pursue these four guys because he was necessarily impressed by them. Instead, he pursued these four guys simply because he loved them. And if you are a disciple of Jesus right now, if you are a Christian, you are so because Jesus pursued you. You are so because Jesus loved you. You are not a disciple. You are not a Christian because you somehow impressed Jesus into taking you into his family, letting you step into his kingdom. You are so simply by the grace of Jesus who pursued a relationship with you, who came after you, who perhaps found you when you weren't even looking for him. This is what he's doing here. He's modeling this graceful oriented approach to disciple making, pursuing them. And when he goes to them, when he sees them, we're, we're told that he said something to them. He summons them. He uses that line, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. He's summoning these guys into a relationship with himself. Follow me. And these guys aren't required by Jesus to do anything to become his, his disciples. They don't have to impress him. They don't have to pass an exam. They simply respond to his summons. And there's a powerful phrase, that, that whole idea of follow, follow me. When Jesus uses those two words, it is a command in the original language of the New Testament. He's commanding these guys, follow me. But it's a good command. It is a command everyone wants to obey because it carries this idea of coming back to where you belong. Follow me because you belong with me. 
follow me because I'm yours and you are mine. It's a summons of these men to return to the type of life they were expected and intended to live. It's not unlike my experience I shared with you last week. When I, I told you last week that as a kid I used to sleep my way through church all the time. And on one particular occasion, I slept through the sermon, and then I also slept through the music that followed the sermon. I slept through the invitation, the dismissal, everything. People left the building, and I just slept through the whole thing. I woke up. It was an evening service. It was dark. All the lights had been turned out. It was one of those situations where my dad thought I was with my mom. My mom thought I was with my dad. And I woke up, and I was all by myself in pitch blackness. Now, a church sanctuary is a scary place to be sometimes when the lights are on, much less, much more so when the lights are turned off. And you're only seven. And so I woke up. I started freaking out. And then suddenly my dad came back. He, he and my mom realized that they left me. And so they returned. And my dad turned the lights on in the sanctuary. And I shared that part of the story with you. But what I didn't share with you is how my dad summoned me. For not only did he turn the lights on in the sanctuary, dispelling the darkness and calming my fear. He then excited my little heart when he said, Andrew, come here. And I realized that my father had come to get me, and he came to get me to bring me back to where I belong. This is precisely what Jesus is doing in the lives of his disciples. He's, he's living out the reality that they and you were created by God and for God. Employing the reality that your heart will be restless until it finds its rest in God. You belong with God as truly as a fish belongs in water. And when you take a fish out of water, it dies. When our lives are cut off from God, we die. And so Jesus pursues his disciples and he summons them saying, follow me, come back to where you belong. I've come to bring you back into the kingdom of God so that you might live in light of my redemptive reign, my redemptive rule. And so he's summoning them into this relationship. Follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. That's the pursuit of grace in this passage. But with this grace, with this approach Jesus is taking in this moment, comes, also comes a command, right? And it is a good command when we understand who it is that's making it. If you know who's commanding you you, you, you may want to obey that command. And if you understand that Jesus is the king in the kingdom of God, and he commands you to do something, you're going to want to do it because he's king, because he's Jesus, and so the command here is fairly disruptive to these disciples. They're living their lives. They're doing their thing. They, they have their routine in place. They have their life set up. Being fishermen in Galilee did not mean they were poor men. These were middle class men, middle, perhaps in some cases, upper class men, making a solid living for themselves and for their families, employing their passions, employing their talents. They were living their lives in a, in a good way, in a good fashion. But when Jesus steps onto the scene of their lives and he commands them, follow me, understand that he's commanding a complete reorientation to their lives. He's saying, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. You are to be reoriented as my disciples. And the way Mark lays it out in this passage is he's laying out kind of the ideal response a person should give to Jesus. Because these disciples respond immediately, don't they? Two times that word is used. Immediately they respond to Jesus. 
And totally, they threw everything aside. They left their vocation. They even left their families and they followed Jesus as his disciples. And so you get this incredibly, incredibly challenging picture to us, a, a picture that shows us disciples actually reorient their lives around Jesus. This is who a disciple is. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you have reoriented your life around Jesus. There was a time in your life, as there was a time in my life, where you thought you were the center of the universe. You lived the way most of humanity lived prior to the Copernican Revolution, where they thought the earth sat at the center of everything, and the sun and everything revolved around us. But then when Jesus steps onto the scene in your lives, he shows you that that's just an illusion. To think that you are the center of reality, the center of the universe, is no dangerous illusion. And so when he turns the lights on in your soul and he brings about his kingdom into your life, you realize, I'm not the center of everything. Life doesn't begin and end with me. There's another center. There's another glory. There's another person that we are to be oriented around. And so just as the Copernican Revolution showed the world that the earth isn't the center of our universe, that that it actually revolves around the sun, and, and when you really pan back, you see that the earth is just a freckle on the backside of everything, right? We're really, really small. And there's someone, there's something really, really big kind of holding all this stuff together. And so when Jesus calls his disciples in this moment, he's commanding them to be reoriented. He's saying, I want you to reorient your life around me. You're going to follow me. You're going to listen to me. You're going to learn from me. And when we do that, when Jesus becomes the center of our lives, that means fundamentally he becomes our teacher, doesn't he? I mean, when you talk about a disciple, a disciple is basically a student. A disciple is a learner. So if you say you're a disciple of Jesus, that means you are a student of Jesus. He becomes your teacher, and he begins to teach you about life. He begins to teach you about God. He begins to teach you about how life works best. And as his disciples, you then become teachable in your relationship with Jesus as he becomes the predominant teaching voice in your life. This is what John Calvin was getting at when he talked about his conversion. He described his conversion this way. You saw these words earlier. He said, God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame. God made me teachable in the gospel. And every disciple, if you're going to grow as a disciple of Jesus, you must assume a teachable posture. That means you must be ready for Jesus to tell you you're wrong about stuff. You must be ready to change how you think about stuff. You must be ready to change how you understand reality and how you understand salvation. Jesus is going to teach you that coming to God doesn't happen on the basis of your good works, your good efforts, your moral code. But that coming to God happens through Jesus who will live the life you could not live who will die on the cross for your sins, and who will rise from the grave. You will learn that salvation comes by grace through faith, not of works so that no person may boast. you got to learn these things. In fact, this is the first lesson Jesus teaches all of his disciples. These were the first words he said in verse, 
verse 15 earlier. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Well, how do I get in on that kingdom? Well, you repent and you believe. You stop trusting in yourself and you believe the gospel. You turn from self-reliance and you trust in Jesus and what Jesus has come to do for you. This is how you get on in on his kingdom. This is what Jesus teaches his disciples. So God subdues our mind to teachability, to humble us and to make us teachable. But then Jesus also becomes our leader, doesn't he? We're actually following him. We're walking behind him. He's leading us through the world that is. He's taking us on a journey through the world that is. And he's leading us into the world that is to come. So we're leading him. He's guiding us. He's shepherding us. He's taking us where he wants us to be. You see this immediately in how the disciples respond in this passage. When they leave their nets, they drop their nets, they get out of their boats, they leave their families, and they begin to follow Jesus' leadership. They begin to follow Jesus' leadership throughout the rest of the Gospels. Now, they fumble and bumble along the way, and you're going to be very encouraged by the way the disciples mess things up and the way they don't really follow Jesus' leadership very well. But this is the beauty of grace. Our discipleship, our following Jesus, isn't ultimately dependent upon our ability to keep up with him. He's a good and a graceful discipler. He loves us. He's patient with us. He's kind to us. And so there's encouragement to be had when we read how the disciples in this gospel just fumble and bumble their way in their relationship with Jesus. But one of the questions that comes out of this passage, when you think about how the disciples respond and you ask the question, well, if this is the ideal response that we're to give, does that mean to become a Christian, we quit our jobs or we turn our back on our families and we begin to live that radical kind of way and we make those types of sacrifices? And, and I want to kind of, I don't want to soften the challenge of Jesus' call here, but I do want to make us sober-minded as we think about that. When you read through the Gospels, you're going to find that the disciples, they, they didn't sell their boats. Meaning there are other moments in the Gospels where the, where the disciples use their boats. They go fishing. There are other points of contact in the Gospels that they have with their families. In fact, later in this chapter, Jesus goes home with Peter and he heals his mother-in-law. There's still a relational connection the disciples have with their families. And they still use the hobbies that they had before Jesus called them to be his disciples. The difference I think you see in how it transfers into our lives today is that there was a time in their lives when all of those things defined the disciples. But when Jesus calls them, follow me, I will make you become fishers of men, he's saying, you are now going to be redefined by me. In the ancient culture, people were defined by their family and their jobs. This is why the disciples are referred to as James, the son of Zebedee. This is why uh, they're referred to as fishermen. You see them exercising that trade, which was most likely the trade of their family. So Jesus is calling them into a discipleship relationship that says everything that once defined you will no longer define you. You're going to be redefined by your relationship with me. This means, think about this in light, of, in light of your relationship with Jesus. If you are a disciple of Jesus, if, you've been, if you are being redefined by your relationship with Jesus, that means you are no longer defined by your heritage. 
I don't know what kind of family you came from. Maybe you came from a family where uh, most people did not believe in Jesus. You're not defined by that heritage. You can embrace your own faith and step into your own relationship with Jesus. You don't have to go the way of your mom. You don't have to go the way of your dad. You don't have to go the way of your ancestors. You don't, you're not defined by your heritage on that front. I don't know how important your race is to you. I don't know how important your gender is to you. I don't know how important your culture is to you. Good things, good things. But ultimately, when you become a disciple, you are no longer defined by those aspects of your heritage. Your race, your gender, your culture do not define you in this kind of, in a life-defining way. This is why Paul would say in Galatians when he's talking to the believers there that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We don't want to simply be defined by our race, our gender, and our culture because if we are, do you know what that, what that may do? If we are defined by those types of things, it's possible that we can slide into a perspective on life that goes against the kingdom of God. Let me explain. If you, if you think that if you are ultimately defined by your race, your gender, or your culture, if that's what's most important about you, if that's what you prize above everything else, then that perspective will prohibit you from being able to love those who are not like you. If you are defined ultimately by your race, your gender, and your culture, then on some level in your heart of hearts, you're going to begin to view your race, your gender, your culture as superior to those who are not a part of it. And you're going to elevate yourself above others, which is contrary to the kingdom of God. What you're going to find as Jesus pursues more disciples and as he summons other disciples is he's going after a diverse crew. He's going after an eclectic crew. He's bringing people together who are worlds apart because his kingdom is intended to be a diverse kingdom. So that what brings people together in the kingdom of God isn't necessarily their race, their gender, or their culture. What brings people together in the kingdom of God is their relationship with Jesus. Why is it you and I can live in harmony with one another? Why is it you and I can humble ourselves towards those who are not like us? It's because we're not defined by that which makes us different. We're defined by that which makes us the same. Our relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you and I are going to be a diverse community, if you and I are going to be, if we're going to reflect the kingdom of God, it's going to require you and I getting to a point where we're not so clinging to our race, our gender, and our culture that we are unable to or recognize how we've been redefined by our relationship with Jesus. But not only do you see it there, we're no longer defined by heritage. We're no longer defined by our careers. These guys, these guys drop their nets. They get out of the boat. They start following Jesus. They're no longer defined by that anymore. They're going to be redefined according to their relationship with Jesus. Now, if you're someone who has a tendency to define yourself on the basis of what you do and how well you do it, again, that opens up a world of danger for you. That opens up a world of dysfunction for you. If you define yourself by your career and your successes, you will be tempted to sacrifice that which matters most for the sake of your career. 
And all of a sudden, you're going to become a neglectful dad. All of a sudden, you're going to be a neglectful wife. All of a sudden, you're going to slide into a rhythm of neglect as you're sacrificing those who God has given you to love most for something that is not ultimate, for a job that is here today but gone tomorrow. But the good news of being a disciple of Jesus is we don't have to be defined by our careers. Although our careers and our jobs are are good, we want to do them well, we want to contribute to human flourishing in this city and around the world by what we do, we just don't want to define ourselves to the point where we can't imagine ourselves without those things. What happens if you lose your job tomorrow? What happens if you're fired? If you're defining yourself by your career, your self-worth is going to crumble. You're going to fall apart. You're going to spiral into a negative space spiritually, physically, emotionally, mentally. You're going to go somewhere Jesus is not intending to lead you. So we're no longer defined by our careers when we become disciples of Jesus. But then we're also no longer defined by our possessions. These disciples are stepping out of everything that was theirs. They're they're no longer going to be defined by the things that they have. They're going to start following this Jesus. They're going to learn to live from this Jesus. And when they do, all of a sudden, the whole world, a world of generosity opens up for them. You see, if you're a person who's defined by your possessions, you're going to be tempted to cling to everything you have with clenched fists. You're going to cling to your money. You're going to cling to your time. You're going to cling to your talents. You're going to cling to all of your possessions like this. And you're going to overlook the needs of those around you. You're going to overlook the needs of this city. You're going to overlook the needs of this world. You're not going to contribute to helping others because you're defined by what you have and how much you have. But when you become a disciple of Jesus, you're no longer defined by your possessions. Your fists begin to open and you start holding on to everything with open hands, willing to make any sacrifice Jesus calls you to make, willing to to give, willing, willing to be generous with the things God has entrusted to you. And suddenly when your hands begin to open up and you begin to live a generous life, you begin living in light of this, this kingdom that Jesus has brought into the world. Your lifestyle begins to harmonize with that of heaven, which is a generous place. Your lifestyle begins to harmonize with the heart of God, who is a generous God, who doesn't hoard anything but gives everything. This is what it means for you and I to be defined by our relationship with Jesus. And when you and I get there, when our lives are reoriented and we begin to be redefined by Jesus, all of a sudden we'll be able to embrace the very life Jesus is calling us to. We will embrace the second part of that phrase. Not only does he say, follow me, we'll be able to embrace that second part of verse 17. He says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. We'll be able to embrace the privileged role and opportunity we have to participate in the things of God now. And so if you just kind of pull these things together, eventually you're going to come to a a definition for a disciple that I want to give you tonight and have you hold on to because this is how we're understanding what it means to be a disciple. And it is this. You'll see it in your notes. It says that a, a disciple is a lifelong learner and follower of Jesus who participates in the mission of Jesus. We are people who've given our lives to Jesus and we are people who give our lives for others. We're fully participating in the mission of Jesus. What's the mission of Jesus? 
Well, it concerns his kingdom, doesn't it? It concerns the advancement of his kingdom throughout the world. It concerns bringing his redemptive reign into lives all over the planet. It involves the harmonization of heaven and earth. It's bringing the kingdom of God into the world that is now. It's a beautiful kingdom that people find themselves a part of when they step into relationship with Jesus. But it all centers on that phrase, I will make you become fishers of men, which we learn later in the Gospels that what Jesus is talking about there is making disciples. We give ourselves, we participate in the mission of Jesus as we make disciples. We start investing our lives in those around us in various ways. Now when you think about that, and you think about this snapshot of Jesus and his disciples in this in this passage, you begin to see a few ways in which we are to do so. How is it that you and I are to participate in the mission of Jesus? How is it that we are to go about making disciples? Well, it starts when you and I learn to cooperate with Christ. We make disciples in cooperation with Christ. This is the sequence of that verse. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Step into relationship with me and I'm going to lead you to love and to serve and to help others. So we do it in cooperation with Jesus. This is precisely how Jesus lived his life. If you read one of the other Gospels, the Gospel of John, you'll see Jesus emphasize this over and over and over again. He says things like, I only do what I see my Father doing. Every time I see my Father at work in some person's life or in some situation, I go there and I cooperate. I join him in what he's doing. And then later at the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus would say, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. So that as you've seen me cooperate with the Father, I want you to cooperate with me. This is how you're going to make disciples. I want you to be about doing the things you discern me doing around you. See, disciple making is about participation. It's about joining in on what Jesus is doing i got a picture of this from my son, Asher, who's about 19 months uh, old now. And, and he's walking. He's learning to talk. He's gotten very active recently. Well, about 21 days, I started a little diet, a little, little exercise routine. The 21-day fix is what it's called. And I've, I'm on day 21 now, and I've made it. And I haven't been too grouchy because I've changed my diet and those types of things. But I knew I needed to do it because there was a moment when I realized that my slim-fitting jeans were feeling like skinny jeans, and I needed to make some changes to my, to my lifestyle and my body. So I stepped into this diet, and I began to exercise in my house, following these videos and those types of things. And, and my son, he's gotten to the point where he sees me doing this, and he wants in on it. He wants to exercise too. So we have like a little rack of dumbbells that we use, and, and um, there's two little bitty pink ones that sit on top, very tiny ones. But every time I roll out the mat, and I stand on the mat, and I'm doing my thing, watching the videos, and... Asher will come over and he'll grab those two little pink ones and he'll carry them over to me like this and, and he'll just start telling me what he's doing. I don't understand a word he's saying. And, and then he starts flailing his body. He's not doing anything right. He's doing it about as well as a 19-month-old kid could do. But he's trying to imitate me. He's trying to participate with me. He wants to get in on the things that I'm doing. Why? Because he wants to be with me. He finds joy in being with his father. And there's a sense, when you and I learn that disciple-making is about participating with Jesus, there's a sense in which we're going to glean joy by getting in on what Jesus is doing. Now, we may be as awkward in our approach as Asher is at working out, but the goal of making disciples is to cooperate with Jesus. 
This is how we get to know Jesus. This is how we grow in our faith in, our faith in Jesus. It's by participating and cooperating with the very things that he's up to. And this perspective will revolutionize your approach to making disciples. Just think about your missional communities. Those of you who are involved in our small groups, our missional communities, just think about those for a moment. A lot, sometimes our missional communities have a hard time coming up with ways to serve the city. Every missional community intentionally seeks to serve and to bless their neighborhood at least once a month, contributing to life in their areas. But sometimes uh, opportunities are kind of hard to find and they're trying to create something. But what if we stopped asking the question, what do we need to do to serve the city? What do we need to do to serve Fremont? What do we need to do to serve Green Lake? What do we need to do to serve West Seattle? What do we need to do to serve these various neighborhoods? What if we stopped asking that question? And what if our missional community started coming together and together they begin to ask the question, what is Jesus up to in our neighborhood? What is Jesus doing in Fremont? What is Jesus doing in West Seattle? What if we kind of turn the question in that direction and then our missional communities seek to discern together what Jesus is up to and then instead of trying to create something from nothing, they join in on what Jesus is already doing. So we begin to ask that question and pray that prayer and and expect Jesus to open our eyes to see the things that he's doing, helping us to see need, helping us to see opportunity, helping us to see where we can bring the blessing of the kingdom of God to bear in people's lives. This is how we make disciples. We make it in cooperation with Jesus, but then we also make it in community with one another. This statement cannot be overstated. We make disciples in community with one another. Notice what Jesus is doing here. He's calling his disciples and he calls two at a time. He calls Simon and Andrew and he calls James and John. He calls them to form a community, a new community in Galilee. Now later in a couple of chapters, we're going to see him call a single guy named Levi to follow him. But he doesn't call Levi to follow him as an individual. He calls Levi to join him and the rest of the disciples in community. Jesus is constantly creating community because we make disciples in community with one another. We do this thing together. And then later in this gospel, when Jesus sends his disciples out to do the very things Jesus was doing, he sends them out two by two in communities. There's no rogue pilots in the kingdom of God. There's no lone ranger in the kingdom of God. All that we do, we are to do together. We are one people. We are one community. We are making disciples together. And this is a challenging thing for us today because we live in a strange world, in a strange context that where our generation, we want community more than anything, but we're not willing to work for community. Everybody wants it. Nobody wants to work for it. So they step into a new community where they're expected to participate in the mission of Jesus, but they bring in a certain ideal or they bring in a certain expectation. They start evaluating everything according to their ideal. And what happens is if if the community doesn't meet their needs or their expectations, they bail. And there's no time given to create community. There's no time given to build community because people step out too quickly. We run to the next new thing. We run to the next new church plant. We run to the next new community of faith. And we're we're actually community consumers rather than community creators. 
We step into a group seeking what we can get out of it. We're not asking the appropriate question a disciple asks is, what can I give to it? This is how we make disciples together. We do it by committing to relationships. Now, our relationships with one another may not be the types of relationships that you instinctively gravitate towards because maybe our missional communities are comprised of people who rub you the wrong way, who have, maybe have a different color skin. Maybe they have a different way of life. It's just a little different passion, a little different priority. And, but if you're gauging community and you're evaluating your participation in the community on those external matters, you may not be thinking like a disciple. And so the questions we want to ask ourselves in light of this dynamic is, one, where is Christ at work and are we joining him? And then two, are you a community consumer or a community creator? How can you create community? Not just consume from it. But if you're going to create it, you have to commit to it. And if you're going to be an effective disciple who makes disciples, you have to do that. You can't make disciples apart from community. So we have to work for the community that we've been called to be a part of. But then lastly, we also see that as disciples of Jesus, we make disciples in cooperation with Jesus, in community with one another, and then ultimately we do all of this for the advancement of God's kingdom. We do all of this because we want to give people in the world a glimpse of life in the kingdom of God. We want to showcase the kingdom of God to everyone around us. We want people to see our God of grace. We want people to see our God of love. We want people to see our God of justice. We want people to see the God that we worship and serve on a daily basis. We want people to see the kingdom of God now. And so we make disciples in order to advance the kingdom of God to help people find spiritual, a spiritual type of flourishing in the world that is even if all hell is breaking loose everywhere else. I read a fascinating book um, back in 2008 written by a guy named Stephen Galloway. Uh, it was a novel, perhaps you've seen it, called The Cellist of Sarajevo. And in this novel, he tells a fictional story about a real-life cellist named Vedran Smoljevic. I don't know if I said that right, but that, that's how it's written. And in this novel, he, the, the novel takes place during what's called the Siege of Sarajevo. And in the early 90s, this was a, a moment in time in real human history where about 10,000 people were killed due to the war that had broken, up, broken out in that area. And so the citizens of Sarajevo were living in constant fear of being bombed, of constant fear of being taken out by a sniper, and they were just struggling every day to find food and water and those types of things. And Smoljevic, he, he lived there, and he lived near uh, one of the few working bakeries uh, where a long line of people would gather every day to get their food, to get their bread, and those types of things. And one day there was about 20 people waiting in line to get their bread, and, and he heard an explosion. So he ran to the scene, and when he got there, he was just overcome by the grief and the carnage that he saw as 22 people had been killed while waiting to get bread. And so what he decided to do was for the next 22 days, one day for each victim of the bombing, he decided to challenge the ugliness of war through the beauty of music. And so he went to his room, and he put on his tuxedo, and he got a fire-scorched chair, and he put it in the middle of the bomb crater that was left as a result of that bombing. And he pulled out his cello, and he just began to play. He began to play music. And as so, he became known as the cellist of Sarajevo. And, 
And then he decided to keep things going so that after 22 days of doing that in that one place, he continued to unleash the beauty of music in graveyards and in funerals and in the, rubbling, the rubble of fallen buildings. He, he would play music in the sniper-infested streets of Sarajevo. And his music in this story created an oasis in the midst of much horror. It offered hope to the people of Sarajevo and a vision of beauty to the soldiers who were destroying the city that they were a part of. Now, when you think about making disciples, I want you to consider this. As we advance God's kingdom, as we give ourselves to the mission of Jesus and we start participating in it, our goal, in a sense, is to create a a spiritual oasis amid the horror of a broken world. We want to give people hope. We want to give people life. We want to offer people hope and to grant them a vision of beauty and to anticipate the world that is to come. We want to live our lives towards advancing the kingdom of God into every corner of human existence so people can get glimpses of it now and expecting the day when it comes in its fullest sense. We make disciples in order to advance the kingdom of God. And so the question we ask ourselves in light of this is, is the world around us, is our sphere of influence, the places we come in contact with brokenness and the fallenness of the world that we live in, does our presence and does our participation in this world, is it creating flourishing or is it creating floundering? Is the world around us and our sphere of influence, is it flourishing or is it floundering? Are we living into every corner of our lives the life of the kingdom of God, following Jesus, making disciples, giving people glimpses of the beauty of God's kingdom? So is the world around us flourishing or floundering? That's a question we as disciples need to ask, and that's a question we as disciples need to to answer. So let me ask you to consider your own life as it relates to Jesus' calling of his disciples here. Are you following Jesus? Can you honestly say you were a disciple? Have you reoriented your life around him? Are you being redefined by Jesus? Are you now participating in the mission of Jesus? Are you joining in on what he's doing here in this neighborhood and throughout the city and ultimately around the world? And if you're not, why not? Why would you not want to give your life to this person, to this Jesus? Why would you not want to listen to him? Why would you not want to be led by him? Why would you not want to follow him? He's good. He's graceful, he's kind, he's patient, he's loving, he's worth following. He's worth surrendering our lives to. And so if you're not a disciple of Jesus, let me encourage you to consider Jesus' words to you right now as Jesus says, follow me, give your life to me, and I will make you become fishes of men. I'm going to bring you in on what I'm doing in the world. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us as, for any one of us who identify ourselves as disciples of Jesus, I pray that you would give us grace to grasp more and more and more of what that means. And I pray that you would give us grace to live into the kingdom that we are now a part of. And I pray that you would give us grace to live out the kingdom that we are a part of. And I pray, Jesus, that if there are people you are pursuing right now in this space, people that you are summoning right now in this space, I pray, Lord, that they would be responsive. I pray that your pursuit of them and that your summons to them, I pray that they would receive it and respond to it with faith and repentance, that they would give their lives to you, becoming disciples 
of Jesus. Lord, would you please bring this about um, for your namesake. Amen.